Hey guys, how's it going out there? Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. I'm excited for this episode. This is going to be from Storytime. We're covering the Starbucks company. And this is the second part of the Starbucks story. And we're learning a little bit more about the origins of Starbucks when it started back in the 70s to the point where Howard Schultz discovers it, which isn't until the 80s. And they've got four stores out in Seattle. So you're going to hear a little bit about his journey out there and his meeting with the founders and how one dinner and one short trip literally changes um, his outlook on his life, changes his outlook on a business, changes his outlook on coffee, and changes really the entire game for a young Howard Schultz. So I'm excited to get into this story with you guys, and hopefully you guys are uh, ready to learn and uh, be inspired by this wonderful world of coffee and the Starbucks company. Now let's get into the episode. All right, here we go. Here we go. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? It's time. It's time. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get live. Let's get live. It's story time. <clears throat> Hope you guys are doing doing good, ready to go, ready to rock and roll, ready to continue this uh, this journey of story time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for waking up. If you're just waking up, you know you're late. Let's go. Get up. It's time to wake up. <clears throat> if you're just getting on the stream, if you're on Instagram, if you're on uh, Twitter on the live stream, wherever you're at on Facebook page one, Facebook page two, go ahead and share the stream. Share it with your friends, share it with your peeps, share it with your followers, invite people over. It's time to do this. What's going on? Good morning. This is story time. I'm Sunny D. I'm your host. I come to you guys every morning. This is actually episode number 37. So 37. Um, so we get together every morning, Monday through Friday. And we right now we're studying some amazing uh, companies, different brands. Um, I've got a ton of different books on um, these different companies that I've studied over the years that I've learned so much from as I've been building my business and I thought you know what let's start bringing these stories to the people let's start bringing them you know bringing them to you guys and share some of these um, just some of the insights in the origin stories a lot of times we don't get to see or hear really these origin stories unless you go seeking them out right if you go start looking through the libraries of time and the libraries of history you'll be able to find um, these incredible stories about all of these incredible companies. But if you don't go looking for it, um, you're not gonna find it. And all of these brands that you know we've been talking about and I've been sharing, you know, they're household names. But they didn't start that way. You know, and so if you're just getting started in your journey, you're just getting started um, creating your company. I'm just going to be the same way for you. You know, if you have aspirations of one day becoming a household name, it's going to start with you being a no name, being no one ever heard of you, uh, no one ever, no one ever know, knew about your product, no one ever heard of your service, no one ever, you know, they didn't know anything about you, and it might take years. You know, a lot of people are ready to uh, to throw in the towel after one year, two years, three years. Uh, even five years, you know, people are ready to throw in the towel. You know, people say, you know, oh, I tried that and it didn't work. 
And then I ask them, well, how many times did you try it? And they're like, oh, I tried it a couple times. A couple times, really? Um, some things, you know, take thousands of times. You know, if you think about uh, Thomas Edison, you know, he's um, he gets credit for, you know, really um, creating, uh, you know, for electricity, right? The discovery and the invention of the harnessing electricity with the light bulb. And he tried 10,000 times before he was able able to figure it out. It wasn't like he tried 100 times. That would have been a lot by most cases and most standards. Uh, but we're talking 10,000 times. 10, 1, 0, comma, 0, 0, 0 times. Um, and he said, he didn't look at it as failures. You know, that was the awesome thing. And this is where mindset comes in. He said, you know, I didn't fail 10,000 times. But what I did was I found out uh, 10,000 different ways um, that it wouldn't work. I found out 10,000 different ways to try it. And so he learned something every single time. So if you're just getting started, you know, and, and you're building your, your company or you're, you're just getting going, just keep in mind, it's a long road and it's a long journey. And as I've been sharing these stories and, and I've been sharing my own story as well, I mean, I'm, I'm a baby compared to all of these different companies. You know, I started my company 10 years ago. I started in the beauty industry uh, 15 years ago, you know, going to school and, you know, I'm just getting started. And most of these companies, I mean, I want to say probably the average age of the companies between the different ones that we're talking about is probably somewhere around like 50 years. You know, there's a couple that have been around for 70, 80, 100 years. You know, and so we've been, so the first, you know, 25 episodes, I was reading to you and sharing you stories from my stories um, from these two books, the YFY book series, your first year in the beauty industry, how to not just survive, but thrive about that first 12, 18 months, what to expect, what things that you need to know to be, to arm you for success. And then the second book is your first year in salon ownership, you know, and that's about the ownership mentality, the trials and tribulations. So we went through those books. And now I'm, I'm in the library and I'm coming to you guys with uh, books from, um, from my library on different great companies um, that I've learned so much from. So we went over, uh, let's see, we've hit the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, if you haven't caught up on all the episodes. Amazing. Uh, the, the epitome, of the gold standard was the book. We hit that one, Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Uh, last week... We went over, we went through the McDonald's story. Um, amazing, another amazing company. If you haven't seen the movie, The Founder, The Founder captures some of it, but we really got into the, into the nitty gritty with that book, Grinding It Out by Ray Kroc. And then this week, I put out a little vote over the weekend um, between Starbucks and Coca-Cola. I mean, I've got some lined up here. I've got Ikea, I've got Coca-Cola, I've got Patron, I've got Apple, you know, um, a few more. I'm looking at this pile of, uh, of books on these different companies that we're going to be going through. But between Starbucks and Coca-Cola, Starbucks won out. So that's the company that we're going through this week. And I'm reading to you guys uh, from this book here, Pour Your Heart Into It. So Pour Your Heart Into It. You know, there's a lot of different books on the company, on Starbucks, but Pour Your Heart Into It is written by the chairman and CEO, and he's now the former CEO, Howard Schultz, how Starbucks built a company one cup at a time. 
And so there's a lot of different books. I've got a couple different ones um, that I've read that I'm gonna probably, you know, maybe dive into a little bit or at least introduce to you guys. Uh, but this is one of the OGs. And this is the story up until, up and through uh, 1997. That's really where that company was built. Now that period of time, we're still talking, you know, 20 plus years. You know, Starbucks has now been around since the 70s. Um, so that period of time is really where that foundation was built. And so you guys got to meet, uh, learn a little bit about um, Howard yesterday, you know, growing up poor in the projects in Brooklyn, um, coming into really, you know, a situation where it was like, I got to get out of here, right? How am I going to get out of here? And he used sports to get out of the projects in Brooklyn. He used sports um, to get into college and uh, it wasn't good, ended up not playing, ends up in, you know, in college, just kind of making it, you know, hustling through, working on jobs, trying to make it through. And then from there, you know, doesn't want to go back to New York, right? He's trying to do everything he can to stay away. And he was up in uh, Northwestern uh, Michigan and he ends up coming back to New York and he ends up going to a party, meets the love of his life, um, gets married. Now he's got his college degree, gets a great job, sales job, working, um, doing his thing, had another job, started traveling, got to go to Sweden, got to hang out. Um, but he's doing his thing and he's like almost 30 and he's like, from every angle you would look at him and think, you know, this guy is successful. He's got, you know, he's got his, his you know, relationship looks great. His finances look great. He's got a great apartment. Um, he's killing it. But him inside, he started having these thoughts and he just wasn't really there he thought there was like something else he wasn't really happy where he was at and he was like you know what am i what am i missing what else could i be doing um what isn't isn't happening and so that's where we're kind of picking up the story where he starts having those thoughts and everyone's like looking at him and you know his parents no one really can understand why he was getting so antsy um, but he said he sensed something was missing. I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. Um, and one of the things that we learned about him, and which I think was huge, was just determination, grit, knocking door after door, making those cold calls, 50 plus cold calls a day, knocking on doors, getting them slammed in your face. He just kept going and going in that tenacity. A couple other key takeaways, presentation skills and sales skills, two critical components. If you're a hairstylist right now, if you're a, uh, you know, a hairstylist, I don't care if you, if you own a salon, whatever you're, you're in, if you're in the beauty industry, if you're not in the beauty industry, I don't care what industry you're in, learning how to, learning presentation skills, learning sales, learning marketing are essential. I say essential for any industry, any you know, profession. Um, and that was something he really got lucky because the company that he worked for in his early adulthood, Xerox, they had a training program. So they schooled him up. So he was crushing it, but he's got this, you know, this feeling like he wants to be in charge of his own destiny. You know, he's wondering, he's always wondering what he'll do next. Enough is never enough. You know, and then he said at the at the close there it wasn't until I discovered Starbucks that I really that I realized what it means when your work truly captures your heart and your imagination. And so that's where we're picking up with Howard and we're going to take a look and see um, where the story goes. So I'm going to get into it. So we start with a quote here. A hundred times every day I remind myself 
that my inner and outer life depend on the labors of other men, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received. Albert Einstein. Banger. Just as I didn't create Starbucks, Starbucks didn't introduce espresso and dark roasted coffee to America. Instead, we became the respectful inheritors of a great tradition. Coffee and coffee houses have been a meaningful part of the community life for centuries, in Europe as well as in America. They have been associated with political upheaval, writers' movements, and intellectual debate in Venice, Vienna, Paris, and Berlin. Starbucks resonates with people because it embraces this legacy. It draws strength from its own history and it ties to the more distant past. That's what makes it more than a hot growth company or a 1990s fad. That's what makes it sustainable. If it captures your imagination, it will captivate others. In 1981, while working for Hammerplast, I noticed a strange phenomenon. A little retailer in Seattle was placing unusually large orders for a certain type of drip coffee maker. It was a simple device, a plastic cone set on a thermos. I investigated. Starbucks Coffee, Tea, and Spice had only four small stores then, yet it was buying this product in quantities larger than Macy's. Why should Seattle be so taken with this coffee maker when the rest of the country was making its daily coffee in electric percolators or drip coffee machines. So one day I said to Sherry, I'm going to see this company. I want to know what's going on out there. In those days I traveled a lot all over the country, but I had never been to Seattle. Who went to Seattle back then? I arrived on a clear, pristine spring day. The air so clean it almost hurt my lungs. The cherry and crab apple trees were just beginning to blossom. From the downtown streets, I could see snow-capped mountain ranges to the east and west and south of the city, etched cleanly against the blue sky. Starbucks retail merchandising manager, Linda Grossman, met me at my hotel and walked me to Starbucks' flagship store in the historic Pike Place Market District. Once there, we walked past the fresh salmon stalls where hawkers were shouting orders and tossing fish across customers' heads past rows of freshly polished apples and neatly arranged cabbages, past a bakery with wonderful fresh bread smells wafting out. It was a showplace for the artistry of local growers and small independent vendors. I love the market at once and still do. It's so handcrafted, so authentic, so old world. The original Starbucks store was a modest place, but full of character, a narrow storefront with a solo violinist playing Mozart at its entrance. His violin case opened for donations. The minute the door opened, a heady aroma of coffee reached out and drew me in. I stepped inside and saw what looked like a temple for the worship of coffee. Behind a worn wooden counter stood bins containing coffees from all over the world, Sumatra, Kenya, Ethiopia, Costa Rica, Remember, this was a time when most people thought coffee came from a can, not a bean. Here was a shop that sold only whole bean coffee. Along another wall 
was an entire shelf full of coffee-related merchandise, including a display of hammer-plast coffee makers in red, yellow, and black. After introducing me to the guy behind the counter, Linda began to talk about why customers like the thermos and cone sets. Part of the enjoyment is the ritual, she explained. Starbucks recommended manual coffee brewing because with an electric coffee maker, the coffee sits around and gets burned. As we spoke, the counterman scooped out some Sumatra coffee beans, grounded them, put the grounds in a filter in the cone, and poured hot water over them. Although the task took only a few minutes, he approached the work almost reverently like an artisan. When he handed me a porcelain mug filled with the freshly brewed coffee, the steam and the aroma seemed to envelop my entire face. There was no question of adding milk or sugar. I took a small tentative sip. Whoa. I threw my head back and my eyes shot wide open. Even from a single sip, I could tell it was stronger than any coffee I'd ever tasted. Seeing my reaction, the Starbucks people laughed. Is it too much for you? I grinned and shook my head. Then I took another sip. This time I could taste more of the full flavors as they slipped over my tongue. By the third sip, I was hooked. I felt as though I had discovered a whole new continent. By comparison, I realized the coffee I had been drinking was swill. I was hungry to learn. I started asking questions about the company, about coffees from different regions of the world, about different ways of roasting coffee. Before we left the store, they ground more Sumatra beans and handed me a bag as a gift. Linda then drove me to Starbucks roasting plant to introduce me to the owners of the company, Gerald Baldwin and Gordon Walker. They worked out of a narrow old industrial building with a metal loading door in front next to a meat packing plant on Airport Way. The minute I walked in, I smelled the wonderful aroma of roasting coffee, which seemed to fill the place up to the high ceiling. At the center of the room stood a piece of equipment of thick silvery metal with a large flat tray in front. This, Linda told me, was the roasting machine, and I was surprised that so small a machine could supply four stores. A roaster wearing a red bandana waved cheerily at us. He pulled a metal scoop, called a trier, out of the machine, examined the beans in it, sniffed it, and then inserted it back in. He explained that he was checking the color and listening till the coffee beans had popped twice to make sure they were roasted dark. Suddenly, with a whoosh and a dramatic crackling sound, he opened the machine's door and released a batch of hot, glistening beans into the tray for cooling. A metal arm began circling to cool the beans, and a whole new aroma washed over us. This one, like the blackest, best coffee you ever tasted. It was so intense, it made my head spin. We walked upstairs and went past a few desks until we reached the offices in the back. Each with a high window of thick glass, Though Jerry Baldwin, the president, was wearing a tie under his sweater, the atmosphere was informal. A good-looking, dark-haired man, Jerry smiled and took my hand. I liked him at once, finding him self-effacing and genuine, with a keen sense of humor. Clearly, coffee was his passion. He was on a mission to educate consumers about the joys of world-class coffee, roasted and brewed the way it should be. Here are some new beans that just came in from Java, he said. We just roasted up a batch. <clears throat> we just roasted up a batch. Let's try it. He brewed the coffee himself using a glass pot he called a French press. 
As he gently pressed the plunger down over the grounds and carefully poured the first cup, I noticed someone standing at the door, a slender bearded man with a shock of dark hair falling over his forehead and intense brown eyes. Jerry introduced him as Gordon Balker, his partner at Starbucks, and asked him to join us. I was curious about how these two men had come to devote their lives to the cause of coffee. Starbucks had been founded 10 years earlier, and they now appeared to be in their late 30s. They had an easy camaraderie that dated back to their days as college roommates at the University of San Francisco in the early 1960s, but they seemed very different. Jerry was reserved and formal, while Gordon was offbeat and artsy, unlike anyone I'd ever met before. As they talked, I could tell they were both highly intelligent, well-traveled, and absolutely passionate about quality coffee. Jerry was running Starbucks, while Gordon was dividing his time between Starbucks, his advertising and design firm, a weekly newspaper he had founded, and a microbrewery he was planning to start, called the Red Hook Ale Brewery. I had to ask what a microbrewery was. It was clear that Gordon was far ahead of the rest of us, full of eccentric insights and brilliant ideas. I was enamored. Here was a whole new culture before me with knowledge to acquire and places to explore. That afternoon, I called Sherry from my hotel. I'm in God's country, I said. I know where I want to live, Seattle, Washington. This summer, I want you to come out here and see this place. It was my Mecca. I had arrived. So he's pretty uh, pumped, right? So now he's found his, as he's calling it, his Mecca in Seattle. And those two guys, right? So they're, they've already been going at this. Um, they built this for 10 years before Howard comes into the picture. You know, he's coming from the East Coast. He's coming across, you know, coming from New York. Um, he's got the only reason he's intrigued. And if you guys remember, we were going through the McDonald's story. Very, very similar. It's crazy how similar it is because there was Ray Kroc who was selling the multi-mixer milkshake machines. And then this one restaurant in California is buying a ton of these. So he goes to investigate and it turns out it was the McDonald's brothers. They had been going for 10 years and then he gets involved in that business and takes it to where it is. Here comes Howard Schultz. He's selling these hammer plast, you know, products. And he's got this company in Seattle. It's got four coffee shops buying these things like crazy. And he's like, what's going on here? I need to go investigate and find out what's happening. He goes to Seattle to investigate. Turns out there's these two guys with these four coffee shops buying these things and they've got the best operation he's ever seen. And they've been at it for 10 years. So it's kind of crazy how similar it is. And so the wheels are turning um, and he's like ready to go. He's ready to get, you know, um, get his stuff packed and move out there. So let's get, let's keep going here. So how a passion for coffee became a business. Jerry invited me to dinner that night at a little Italian bistro on a sloping stone paved alley near Pike Place Market. As we ate, he told me the story of Starbucks earliest days and the legacy it drew upon. The founders of Starbucks were far from typical businessmen. A literature major, Jerry had been an English teacher, Gordon was a writer, and their third partner, Zeb Siegel, taught history. Zeb, who sold out of the company in 1980, was the son 
of the concertmaster for the Seattle Symphony. They shared interest in producing films, writing broadcasting, classical music, gourmet cooking, good wine, and great coffee. None of them aspired to build a business empire. They founded Starbucks for one reason. They loved coffee and tea and wanted Seattle to have access to the best. Gordon was from Seattle, and Jerry had moved there after graduation looking for adventure. Jerry was originally from the Bay Area, and it was there at Pete's Coffee and Tea in Berkeley in 1966 that he discovered the romance of coffee. It became a lifelong love affair. The spiritual grandfather of Starbucks is Alfred Pete, a Dutchman who introduced America to dark roasted coffees. Now in his 70s, Alfred Pete is gray-haired, stubborn, independent, and candid. He has no patience for hype or pretense, but will spend hours with anyone who has a genuine interest in learning about the world's greatest coffees and teas. The son of an Amsterdam coffee trader, Alfred Pete grew up steeped in the exo exoticism of coffees from Indonesia and East Africa and the Caribbean. He remembered how his father used to come home with bags of coffee stuffed in, his, in the pockets of his overcoat. His mother would make three pots at a time using different blends and pronounce her opinion. As a teenager, Alfred worked as a trainee at one of the city's big coffee importers. Later, as a tea trader, he traveled the far seas to estates in Java and Sumatra, refining his palate until he could detect subtle differences in coffees from different countries and regions. When Pete moved to the United States in 1955, he was shocked. Here was the world's richest country, the undisputed leader of the Western world, yet its coffee was dreadful. Most of the coffee Americans drank was Robusta, the inferior type that the coffee traders of London and Amsterdam treated as cheap commodity. Very little of the fine Arabica coffees ever got to North America. Most went to Europe, where tastes were more discriminating. Starting in San Francisco in the 1950s, Alfred Pete began importing Arabica coffee into the States. But there was not much demand for few Americans had ever heard of it. So in 1966, he opened a small store, Pete's Coffee and Tea, on Vine Street in Berkeley, which he ran until 1979. He even imported his own roaster because he thought American companies didn't know how to roast small batches of fine Arabica coffee. What made Alfred Pete unique was that he roasted coffee dark, the European way which he believed was necessary to bring out the full flavors of the beans he imported. He always analyzed each bag of beans and recommended a roast suited to that lot's particular characteristics. At first, only Europeans or sophisticated Americans visited his little shop. But gradually, one by one, Alfred Pete began educating a few discerning Americans about the fine distinctions in coffee. He sold whole bean coffee and taught his customers how to grind and brew it at home. He treated coffee like wine, appraising it in terms of origins and estates and years and harvest. He created his own blends, the mark of a true connoisseur, just as each of the Napa Valley winemakers believes his technique is best. Pete remained a firm proponent 
of the dark roasted flavor, which in wine terms is like a big burgundy with a strong full body that fills your mouth. Jerry and Gordon were early converts. They ordered Pete's coffee by mail from Berkeley, but they never seemed to have enough have enough. Gordon discovered another store in Vancouver, Canada called Murchie's, which also carried good coffee. <clears throat> and he would regularly make the three-hour drive north to get bags of Murchie's beans. On a clear day in August 1970, on the way home from one of those coffee runs, Gordon had had his own epiphany. Later, he told the Seattle Weekly that he was blinded literally like Saul of Tarsus by the sun reflecting off Lake Samish. Right then, it hit me. Open a coffee store in Seattle. Jerry liked the idea right away. So did Zev, Gordon's next-door neighbor and a tea drinker. They each invested $1,350 and borrowed an additional $5,000 from a bank. It was hardly a promising time to open a retail store in Seattle. From day one, Starbucks was bucking the odds. In 1971, the city was in the midst of a wrenching recession called the Boeing Bust. Starting in 1969, Boeing, Seattle's largest employer, had such a drastic downturn in orders that it had to cut its workforce from 100,000 to less than 38,000 in three years. Homes in beautiful neighborhoods like Capitol Hill sat empty and abandoned. So many people lost jobs and moved out of town that one billboard near the airport joked, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? That famous message appeared in April 1971, the same month that Starbucks opened its first store. At that time also, an urban renewal project was threatening to tear down the Pike Place market. A group of developers wanted to build a commercial center with a hotel, convention hall, and parking lot in its place. In a referendum, Seattle citizens voted to preserve Pike Place as it was. Seattle in those days was just beginning to shed its image as an exotic, isolated corner of America. Only the adventurous moved here, thousands of miles from family in the Far East or Midwest or California sometimes on their way to the mines and mountains and fishing grounds of Alaska. The city had not acquired the veneer and polish of the East Coast. Many of the leading families still had ties to the logging and lumber industries. Heavily influenced by the Norwegian and Swedish immigrants who came early in this century, Seattle people tended to be polite and unpretentious. I'm going to jump in here for a second. So, crazy kind of situation as we're learning a little bit more about what's happening with um, good old Starbucks and you know I've shared this from my story from right now you know dealing with the uh, the coronavirus which I call we're heading into this corona economy about businesses a lot of businesses get started during down times a lot of businesses get started during um, during a you know an economic downturn so when these guys have that you know when um the, he has that epiphany gordon's driving home from making a coffee run picking up bags of coffee up in canada and has the epiphany you know what we should start a coffee company boom hits him right he's not thinking about well you know 
right now is the worst time to start a, a company because like people are out of work and all these things. He's not thinking that because when something like that hits you, you know, it, it's, it is it's a, an epiphany. Everything else is silent. Just like that. So he gets this idea in his head. His neighbor thinks it's cool. His friend Jerry, you know, from college, he tells him about things that's cool. So they decide, all right, let's do this. So check the numbers though. $1,350. So all three of them invest that. So that's like one, two, three, four. It's a little over four grand between them. And then they borrow five grand. So like we're sitting around like $10,000. They start Starbucks. In 1971, the city's in a recession. People are unemployed. You know, the Boeing bus, they shrink their workforce down to less than 38,000 from over 100,000. There's signs, you know, all around saying, now is the worst time to start a business. Now, what if they weren't willing to take that chance? What if they weren't willing to jump in and give it a shot? You know, and that's what was going on. And it was a passion. It was an idea. It hit them and they're willing to take the chance. And that's where you're going to have to be too, guys. You're going to have to be willing to take the chance. There may be an idea that you have right now that you're thinking, oh, I don't know if this will ever work or, you know, timing is never going to be on your side. You know, yeah, there's, you could be in the right place at the right time, but timing is never going to be on your side. You don't, you don't know what time that is to be when you, when you say be in the right place at the right time. So that if you know timing's never going to be on your side, you have to just be willing to take a chance. And sometimes, and it might be right now, you know, heading into this corona economy where you might be thinking, you know, now is the worst time to do anything. But this actually might be actually not the worst time to do it, but this might be the best time to do it. You know, so timing's never going to be on your side. If they never took that chance, you know, getting a few dollars together between them, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here, to, A, talking about it. Be drinking some Starbucks that I, you know, brewed at home, um, and and for all of you guys that are out there that drink Starbucks, have drank Starbucks, or know of the company, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't be it wouldn't exist. So I want you to keep that in mind. Timing is never going to be on your side, and sometimes you just gotta go for it. <clears throat> so yeah, this is the worst time in the world to uh, start a company, and that's what exactly what they're going to do. <clears throat> so let's jump in here. In the early 1970s, a few Americans, especially on the West Coast, were starting to turn away from prepackaged flavor-added foods that were too often stale and tasteless. Instead, they chose to cook with fresh vegetables and fish, buy fresh baked bread, and grind their own coffee beans. They rejected the artificial for the authentic, the process for the natural, the mediocre for the high quality, all sentiments that resonated with Starbucks founders. A market study would have indicated it was a bad time to go into the coffee business. After reaching a peak of 3.1 cups a day in 1961, coffee consumption in America had begun a gradual decline, which lasted until the late 80s. But the founders of Starbucks were not studying market trends. They were filling a need, their own need, for quality coffee. In the 1960s, the large American coffee brands began competing on price, 
To cut costs, they added cheaper beans to their blends, sacrificing flavor. They also let coffee cans stay on a supermarket shelf until the coffee got stale. Year after year, the quality of canned coffee got worse, even as advertising campaigns made claims for its great taste. The, they fooled the American public, but they didn't fool Jerry and Gordon and Zev. The three friends were determined to go ahead and open their coffee store, even if it appealed only to a tiny niche of gourmet coffee lovers. Only a handful of American cities had such stores until well into the 1980s. Gordon consulted with his creative partner artist, Terry Heckler, about a name for the new store. Gordon had pressed to call it Pequod, the name of the ship in Melville's Moby Dick. But Terry recalls protesting, You're crazy! No one's going to drink a cup of Pequod? <laughs> the partners agreed that they wanted something distinctive and tied to the Northwest. Terry researched names of turn-of-the-century mining camps on Mount Rainier and came up with Starbo. In a brainstorming session, that turned into Starbucks. Ever the literature lover, Jerry made the connection back to Moby Dick. The first mate on the Pequod was, at it, as it happened, named Starbuck. Interesting. The name evoked the romance of the high seas and the seafaring tradition of the early coffee traders. Terry also poured over old marine books until he came up with a logo based on an old 16th century Norse woodcut, a two-tailed mermaid or siren, encircled by the store's original name, Starbucks Coffee, Tea, and Spice. That early siren, bare-breasted and rubenesque, was supposed to be as seductive as coffee itself. That's pretty cool. I forgot about that. So yeah, so they're sitting around. You know, the company could have been called Pequod. That would have been funny. Um, but they're sitting around brainstorming, you know, and coming up with the ideas. And now they got the, you know, as I call her, the green lady. Starbucks opened its doors with little fanfare in April 1971. The store was designed to look classically nautical, as though it had been there for decades. The fixtures were all built by hand. One long wall was covered with wooden shelving, while the other was devoted to whole bean coffee, with up to 30 different varieties available. Starbucks did not then brew and sell coffee by the cup, but they did sometimes offer tasting samples, which were always served in porcelain cups, because the coffee tasted better that way. The cups also forced customers to stay a little longer to hear about the coffee. Initially, Zev was the only paid employee. He wore a grocer's apron and scooped out beans for customers. The other two kept their day jobs, but came by during their lunch hours or after work to help out. Zev became the retail expert, while Jerry, who had taken one college course in accounting, kept the books and developed an ever-growing knowledge of coffee. Gordon, in his words, was the magic mystery and romance man. It must have been obvious to him from the start that a visit to Starbucks could evoke a brief escape to a distant world. From the opening day, sales ex exceeded expectations. A favorable column in the Seattle Times brought in an overwhelming number of customers the following Saturday. 
The store's reputation grew mostly by word of mouth. In those early months, each of the founders traveled to Berkeley to learn about coffee roasting at the feet of the master, Alfred Pete. Dogs are, dogs are going crazy. You like dogs? Quiet dogs. They worked in his store and observed his interaction with customers. He never stopped stressing the importance of deepening their knowledge about coffee and tea. So Alfred, Alfred Pete, you know, Pete's Coffee and Tea is still around. I see him sometimes, you know, if you're traveling out west, you know, you'll see him out there still. Um, I've seen, you know, a store here and there and airports. Um, but yeah, Pete's Coffee. So that was kind of like their, their, uh, their mentor in the business. And so they're helping, he's helping them learn more about it. In the beginning, Starbucks ordered its coffee from Pete's, but within a year, the partners bought a used roaster from Holland and installed it in a ramshackle building near Fisherman's Terminal, assembling it by hand with only a manual in German to guide them. In late 1972, they opened a second store near the University of Washington campus. Gradually, they created a loyal clientele by sharing with their customers what they had learned about fine coffee. Seattle began to take on the coffee sophistication of the Bay Area. To Starbucks founders, quality was the whole point. Jerry especially imprinted his strong opinions and uncompromising pursuit of excellence on the young company. He and Gordon obviously understood their market because Starbucks was profitable every year despite the economy's ups and downs. They were coffee purists, and they never expected to appeal to more than a small group of customers and discrim with discriminating tastes. <clears throat> we don't manage the business to maximize anything except the quality of the coffee, Jerry Baldwin told me that evening at the restaurant. By then, we had finished our main course and began dessert. The waiter poured us each a strong cup of coffee, and Jerry proudly announced that it was Starbucks. I had never heard anyone talk about a product the way Jerry talked about coffee. He wasn't calculating how to maximize sales. He was providing people with something he believed they ought to enjoy. It was an approach to business and to selling that was as fresh and novel to me as the Starbucks coffee we were drinking. Tell me about the roast, I said. Why is it so important to roast it dark? The roast, Jerry told me, was what differentiated Starbucks. Alfred Pete had pounded into them a strong belief that the dark roast brought out the full flavors of coffee. The best coffees are all Arabicas, Jerry explained, especially those grown high in the mountains. The cheap Robusta coffees used in the supermarket blends cannot be subjected to the dark roasting process, which will just burn them. But the finest Arabicas can withstand the heat, and the darker the beans are roasted, the fuller the flavor. So he's getting his um, he's getting his learn on. He's getting schooled. He's getting his knowledge. Having that dinner with Jerry, just on a little mission, you know, going out there to to kind of feel out what was happening. Um, so now he's blown away, and he's sitting there and you know learning about the roasting, learning about the coffee. Um, really, just in his head, probably you know formulating a little bit on like how amazing the operation is, and. Knowing that Jerry's approach, like the Starbucks guys are, are really approaching it as like, we want to create the best product. That's what we're trying to do. 
Um, we're not trying to sell to the masses right now. We're not, you know, we had, they had four stores at that point, um, but that's where, you know, their their head and their mindset was at in the creation of the company. So let's jump back in here. So from the beginning, Starbucks stayed exclusively with the dark roast. Jerry and Gordon tweaked Alfred Pete's roasting style and came up with a very similar version, which they called the Full City Roast, now called the Starbucks Roast. Jerry picked up a bottle of beer, a Guinness, comparing the Full City Roast of coffee to your standard cup of canned supermarket coffee, he explained, is like comparing Guinness beer to Budweiser. Most Americans drink light beers like Budweiser. But once you learn to love dark, full, flavorful beers like Guinness, you can never go back to Bud. Although Jerry didn't discuss marketing plans or sales strategies, I was beginning to realize he had a business philosophy the likes of which I had never encountered. First, every company must stand for something. Alexa, stop. Did anybody call you? No. Although Jerry never <clears throat> didn't discuss marketing plans or sales strategies, I was beginning to realize he had a business philosophy the likes which I had never encountered. First, every company must stand for something. Starbucks stood not only for good coffee, but specifically for the dark roasted flavor profile that the founders were passionate about. That's what differentiated it and made it authentic. Second, you don't just give the customers what they ask for. If you offer them something they're not accustomed to, something so far superior that it takes a while to develop their palates, you can create a sense of discovery and excitement and loyalty that will bond them to you. It may take longer, but if you have a great product, you can educate your customers to like it rather than no, rather than kowtow, kowtowing to mass market appeal. You know, so that's they're developing the strategy of like how do we. Um, yeah, like Alexa's rude sometimes, she just interrupts. Um, but how do we develop like our customer and our guest? You know, if you're in a salon, right, and you're, you're you first you're thinking, like, okay, what do you stand for? Um, what if, or you have a chair, like, what does your business stand for? And as you're starting to take your guests through that journey and that experience, the education, so they're focused on educating. You know, and that's a big thing, educating the consumer, educating the person that's drinking their coffee, um, teaching them a little bit more about the different flavors and why they taste that way. Um, so, and not, you know, for in America, like it's a new thing, especially at that time when people don't know like what good coffee tastes like. So they have to, they have that, that mission in front of them to educate people so they can learn um, to, to not only understand, but also appreciate. You know, because if you don't know what you don't know, then it's hard sometimes to realize. You know, I think about like when I went to, uh, you know, Paul Mitchell, the school, and I never checked out any other beauty schools. I didn't really know what I didn't know. But once after I graduated or I met people that went to other schools or I went and checked out some other schools, I realized like I had picked, you know, I had picked a better, a better choice um, than a lot of what's out there. So that's the thing. If people are drinking garbage coffee, and never experienced anything else, they're like, all right, this is great. And then you put the marketing behind it, right? The companies that market it and say, you know, you can think of all the jingles, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. I remember that commercial. I don't know if it still exists. I mean, the coffee still exists, but I don't know if that commercial still exists. 
But all that marketing and the money they put behind it, you start thinking, oh, that's what coffee is supposed to taste like. And so that's where these founders are. So get back to the story here. Starbucks founders understood a fundamental truth about selling. To mean something to customers, you should assume intelligence and sophistication and inform those who are eager to learn. If you do, what may seem to be a niche market could very well appeal to far more people than you imagine. I wasn't smart enough to comprehend all of this that first day I discovered Starbucks. It took years for these lessons to sink in. Although Starbucks has grown enormously since those days, product quality is still at the top of the mission statement. But every so often, when executive decisions making when executive decision making gets tough, when corporate bureaucratic thinking starts to prevail, I pay a visit to that first store in Pike Place Market. I run my hand over the worn wooden counters. I grab a fistful of dark roasted beans and let them sift through my fingers, leaving a thin, fragrant coating of oil. I keep reminding myself and others around me that we have a responsibility to those who came before. We can innovate. We can reinvent almost every aspect of the business except one. Starbucks will always sell the highest quality, fresh roasted, whole bean coffee. That's our legacy. On the five-hour plane trip back, <clears throat> on the five-hour plane trip back to New York the next day, I couldn't stop thinking about Starbucks. It was like a shining jewel. I took one sip of the watery airline coffee and pushed it away. Reaching into my briefcase, I pulled out the bag of Sumatra beans opened the top and sniffed. I leaned back and my mind started wandering. I believe in destiny. In Yiddish, they call it Vashert. At that moment, flying 35,000 feet above the earth, I could feel the tug of Starbucks. There was something magic about it, a passion and authenticity I had never experienced in business. Maybe, just maybe, I could be a part of that magic. Maybe I could help it grow. How would it feel to build a business as Jerry and Gordon were doing? How would it feel to own equity, not just collect a paycheck? What could I bring to Starbucks that could make it even better than it was? The opportunity seemed as wide open as the land I was flying over. By the time I landed at Kennedy Airport, I knew in my heart that this was it. I jumped into a taxi and went home to Sherry. That was the way I met Starbucks, and neither of us has been the same since. All right, so we're going to finish there for today. So he's now, you know, caught the bug. He's caught the itch. He's got the, you know, he's got, he's definitely got the Starbucks. He's drinking the coffee. He's drinking the Kool-Aid. He's got the Starbucks fever. Um, and now he's going home back to New York and he's got all these things going through his head. You know, think about owning equity, right? Which simply means, you know, owning a piece of a company versus um, just collecting a paycheck, you know? So he's got that going on in his head. He's thinking like, what would it feel like to be help this company grow? He felt the passion um, from the owners that he met and, and having dinner with Jerry and learning about the history and the story. Um, knowing that the, the quality of the product is there, um, just seeing the whole operation. And he's ready, 
right? He's going back and um, he's going to go you know, talk to Sherry about it. Um, and we'll pick back up on the story and find what happens next on the next episode of Storytime. So I want to thank you guys for hanging out. Um, hopefully you're having you know some fun with this, learning some cool things, um, learning about these origins, these origin stories of some of these great companies. You know, even from the name, you know, thinking about how these guys started with these four stores and started during a you know, financial downturn. So right now, you know, I've been talking about this over the last couple of months. How there's businesses that could be you know coming to life right now, and I'm not talking about like, oh well. You know, not like, oh, it's it's a bad time to start a business. I'm just going to whip something out of my ass. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like filling a need. When these guys started Starbucks, they weren't thinking, you know, a million stores all over the world. They were trying to solve a problem. They were trying to fill a need. So if you start looking around the world, right, eyes open, antenna up, there's probably things out there. There's probably problems out there. There's probably processes out there that need someone to look at with some fresh eyes that need maybe a fresh approach that that are ripe and have opportunity it's just a matter of us being open and looking for those opportunities and that's what happened with those guys when they decided you know what you know we're driving to canada to buy coffee when we can just you know maybe start our own thing and really it was just for them initially and then boom it turns in and then when you know, Howard is going out there and he's visiting with them and he's seeing this operation. He's thinking, man, this operation is incredible, but what could it be, right? What could it be? And hearing the passion and being around that and that spirit is starting to seep in. Um, so I'm excited to kind of continue this journey, learning about the great Starbucks coffee company and the coffee, the original name, Starbucks Coffee Tea and Spice Company. And the origins there is, is pretty cool. So I'll be back with you guys tomorrow morning for another episode of Storytime. So I want to thank you guys for being here. Make sure you share this with a friend. Share this with somebody you think might be interested in just learning about different businesses. I'm hearing some of these stories of some of these great companies that we're going to be covering. Um, I'm excited to get back with you guys tomorrow morning. I'm thinking tomorrow we'll probably be at our regular time, 9, unless... Uh, something comes up and we go early um, stay tuned to Instagram I'll put out a little countdown you know either in the morning I'll try to put it up at night I think it'll be better I'll put it up at night um, so we can make sure uh, we we can take a look and see what the best time is um, but we're gonna keep this going uh, I'm gonna go work at the salons for the rest of today so hope you guys have a great day um, hope you had a great morning thanks for waking up thanks for joining me for story time all the previous episodes if you go to the yfyipodcast.com all these episodes are there they're available if you're watching whether on Instagram if you're on Facebook pages one Facebook page two if you're listening on Twitter all the episodes are there the videos will be on my Facebook page um, that's where those will live and also you'll be able to catch um, catch some of these clips in these episodes also on the gram so thanks again for hanging out um, thanks for tuning in guys and I'll see you for the next episode I'll see you on the next episode of Storytime Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode of Storytime and got inspired. I know I did as I was reading back through that, just knowing like, you know, that epiphany happens and next thing you know, you're on this whole journey and that's how life is sometimes, you guys. There's 
there's the right place at the right time, but we don't know what time that is. So that's why you just got to kind of be open because opportunity sometimes will present itself in a weird way, in a weird fashion. And you may not think initially that your life is going to be going in one direction and all of a sudden it takes a sharp left, it takes a sharp right, or it does a complete you know, 180 and makes, makes a, a U-turn. Just got to be open to those possibilities. And that's where Howard was when he took that trip. So I'm excited to come back tomorrow with the next episode of Storytime. If you can join us live, we're going to be live on Instagram, live on my Facebook pages. Um, you'll be able to check it out there. And then all past episodes, current and future episodes of the YFYI podcast, you can check out at yfyipodcast.com. So thanks again for tuning in. I'm excited to continue the journey and learning about Starbucks with you guys. And thanks for listening. This is the YFYI podcast. Remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll talk to you soon.